Well, good morning again. Good morning again. Thanks, Pastor Joe, for that. So I can say this and feel like everyone's included. He is risen. He is risen indeed. Amen. Amen. I was recently in Seattle, and I was meeting someone, and the meeting was supposed to get over around 11 or so. It just happened to be a Friday afternoon, and I needed to be back down in, in Colt. And as I, as I was moving um, the meeting along and knowing it was getting later and later, it finally ended about 1 p.m., and um, I, I got into my rig, and I was headed home, and I punched into the GPS, Yakult, and it said three hours and ten minutes, which, you know, was a little longer than it took me to get up there, but I expected that, you know, Friday afternoon getting out of Seattle. And I started following the direction of the GPS, and about the time, um, well, let's just put it this way. 45 minutes later, I had logged a total of 12 miles, and then this annoying kind of creepy voice comes on. If you use GPS, you know her. And she says something along the lines of, and actually, she said this exactly, traffic is getting worse, but you are still on the fastest route. <laughs> that went for about another two hours before I got south of Fort Lewis and Olympia and uh, made my ride home. And so a three-hour and ten-minute ride turned into a six-plus-hour ride um, on the way home. And, you know, it's just such a picture, I think, for what life can be like from time to time. We can have in our own hearts, in our own minds, our day planned out. We can have our week planned out. We can have our month planned out, maybe our lives planned out. But even though you're heading in one direction and time continues to click by, it seems like maybe you're going backwards. And when this takes place, that oftentimes leads us to a place of discouragement, indifference, despair, disillusionment, whatever else we could say about that. And um, I don't know where you're at today. I mean, Easter is an awesome day, a day of celebration. But the very first Easter that we're going to look at had two men, and uh, they were experiencing on a much greater depth of despair um, on their walk from the place that they were at to the place that they're going. It's called the road to Emmaus, and it looks like we might have some technical difficulties here, but that's okay. We'll work through the technical difficulties. It's much harder for those poor people back in the overflow room, but um, James is working on it. Let's, um, let's pray, and uh, we will, we will uh, we'll jump in here. Heavenly Father, first off, we just ask that you'd work out the technical details so that those that are with us in the overflow room would be able to participate with us. And um, Lord, we, we thank you for this day that has represented the, the whole totality of what our faith is about, um, what makes the followers of Jesus different than every other religion in this world, which is the, the resurrection of our Savior and the power and the life that comes through that. And I, I ask that through the preaching of your words, every single heart in here would hear your voice and be touched by your spirit as, as your word is proclaimed. And we pray this in Jesus' precious name. Amen. Amen. We're still working on it? I have to push something? Oh, so who? Turn the clicker on. Oh, silly me. All right. Check. Oh. 
It's, it's, it's still on, but it'll, it'll come. I'll, I'll, um, well, here, as a means of illustration, kind of while we're getting, getting started. Oh, there we go. Okay. Awesome. That's great. That's great. And we, we do, again, we do this because we have the overflow room. It's not because you can't see me up here, but this is for those people in that room. But one of my weaknesses in life is motorcycles, whether it's on the road or on the dirt. And um, I ride with a lot of guys here at church and uh, on dirt bikes from time to time. And because they um, aren't very gracious to me on the trail as they are in person when we're in church, they will oftentimes rip by me. And as they, they're passing me, they throw up mud into my face. And um, it's quite, it's quite um, um, well, scary because we're in amongst a bunch of trees. But uh, thankfully, one of them helped me invest in what are called these lens layers. And so um, I've got on my face these layers, and as these bikes throw mud in my face, I can peel a layer away. And then again, I can see um, until the next group passes me and throws mud in my face. But we've got these layers. And, and as we kind of said earlier, as Jesus is going to come, if we come to this text today, our, our, our two main characters, Cleopas and his buddy, they have these layers on. And, and Jesus comes along, and only like Jesus can, he, he peels away these, these layers. And so since we're ready to go, let's, let's just jump in. So Luke 24 is where we're at. And... This tells a story of these two men who, on the very first Easter ever, they're walking from Jerusalem to a little village called Emmaus that we could presume was their home. As they're walking, they're arguing a bit. They're debating some of the things that took place. And uh, this is about a seven-mile walk. It would have taken them about an hour and a half. As we get that context, let's pick it up in verses 14 through 17 it says this they were talking to each other about all these things that had happened and while they were talking and debating these things jesus himself approached and began to accompany them this is key to this whole story this next sentence but their eyes were kept from recognizing him then he said to them what are these matters you are discussing so intently as you walk along that word intently there is it's kind of given the idea that they were debating And then Jesus says this. He says, what are these things you're discussing so intensely? He just kind of secretly, with his true identity concealed from them, injects himself into their conversation. And and then um, it goes like this. You can almost imagine these two guys. They're having this conversation. This, This dude pops into the picture and then says this. And they stood still looking sad. And then one of them said, named Cleopas, he answered, Are you the only visitor to Jerusalem who does not know the things that have happened here, these, or happened there in these days? <clears throat> What's interesting here is that really two questions were asked. Question number one was the obvious question. Question number two was an implied question. And if Jesus had answered these questions, the first way that he would have answered question number one would have been pretty much, like this. There's not a single person on the face of this earth that who could, not compre- could not comprehend and know the totality of what has taken place these last few days. That's not what he said, but the implied question that you can kind of see here that these guys were asking Jesus, who they didn't know was Jesus, was this. Dude, where have you been? Where have you been? <clears throat> if Jesus would have answered that question, 
I would presume it would have gone something a little bit like this. He would have said something along the lines of, well, let's start back at Thursday. I had the Passover meal with some of my closest friends. Then through the darkness, we went to the Mount of Olives on, in the Garden of Gethsemane, where I prayed. And I prayed so intensely that I sweat blood. I begged my father to let this cup pass from me. When I finished praying, I found my closest friends and disciples sleeping. And then out of the darkness came this crowd, a crowd with torches and with clubs and with swords. They were led by another one of my dear friends who came up to me and he betrayed me with the kiss of death. Then I was arrested and I was tossed around between the religious and the Roman authorities. Ultimately, I found myself before the Roman governor, a man named Pilate. Pilate interviewed me and he found no fault in me. He sought to release me. But the crowds screamed, crucify him, crucify him. Falling prey to political correctness, he turned me over to be crucified. I was beaten, I was mocked, I was spit upon, I was pierced, I was hung on a cross, I was executed. But I wasn't simply executed to satisfy bloodthirsty men, but I was subjected to the complete, utter wrath of God. For before his face I was forsaken, and he placed upon me the sins of my people. It was then finished. I gave up my spirit, and there I died. And they took me down from the cross, and they laid me in a tomb. And they took my beaten and my broken body, and they wrapped it in cloth, and then... They posted a guard in front as they rolled a huge and heavy stone in front of the tomb. And there I was, a corpse. And then, this very morning, a cosmic burst of God's supreme, creative power supernaturally came upon me and returned my soul to my body. My heart, it began to beat again and push blood through my veins and through my arteries. And my brain began to think. And I opened my eyes, alive. And by the power of God, I was able to escape the binding grave. And the angels, they came and they rolled the stone away. And I walked out alive. And then I could imagine Jesus saying, and where have you been? As for Luke, he doesn't give us that answer. But he, he does something else. He doesn't tell us um, of that because that's just not what Jesus chose at that time to reveal. Instead, Jesus began to peel away these layers of discouragement and despair from these two men. And he begins by playing along and he says, what things, what things are, are, are you talking about? 
And they reply like this in verses 19 and 21. The things concerning Jesus, the, the Nazarene, a man who with his powerful deeds and words proved to be a prophet of God and all the people and how our chief priests and rulers handed him over to be condemned to death and crucified him. But we had hoped that he was the one who was going to redeem Israel. <clears throat> it was with that statement that Cleopas revealed the source of all of his trouble and his despair. See, he had expectations for social and political and economic reform to come from the Messiah. <clears throat> but his limited perspective did not allow him to embrace the Messiah's true agenda, which was not economic prosperity and political liberation. That might have been a teensy-tiny fraction of it. But see, Cleopas's expectations yield to a really a tragic consequence. And, and he and his companion, they, see, they saw everything clearly. They actually had all of the facts of what had taken place. Yet, they lacked the ability to see what had been plainly visible to them. They had all the facts, but they lacked to be able to see what should have been plainly visible. So, Jesus now goes and he starts to point out what are, we'll say, are these three faulty layers. If you're taking notes, you can find this there. If not, you can follow along. But first off is their viewpoint was, was horizontal. Their viewpoint was, was horizontal. Take, take note here um, how Cleopas characterized the death of Jesus. He said, he saw Jesus, a prophet of God, or a prophet before God and all of the people. But the chief priests and the rulers, they handed him over to be crucified. You see, they, they kind of saw that Jesus was the one that was the pawn of all of this game. That he was the one that was being pushed around and wasn't the one in control. However, Jesus didn't see this way. In John 19, Jesus said, to Pilate, you would have no authority at all over me unless it had been given to you from my Father above. And then Peter, in Acts, says this. He says, Jesus the Nazarene, a man clearly attested to you by God with powerful deeds and wonders and miraculous signs that God performed among you through him, just as you yourselves know this man who was handed over by the predetermined plan and the foreknowledge of God, you executed by nailing him to a cross. Peter had a divine perspective. He wasn't stuck on a horizontal perspective. Peter understood that guys like Pontius Pilate, Herod, Caiaphas, really these guys are nothing more than just, just blots on the pages of prophetic history. Uh, forgive me for my rather plain example, but I was walking through our pasture, and in our pasture we had a big pond with hundreds of goldfish in this pond. It was kind of, they, I don't even know where they came from. Someone planted them at some point, and we fed them cat food, and they grew. <laughs> all, of, all of these cat, all these fish all over the place, and um, I'm walking through the, the pasture, and I come across, which if you live out here, you know what a molehill looks like. Well, I come across a molehill that we had flattened, and it was just a pile of dirt about like this. And um, it's midday in the summer, and laying on its side, dead center in the middle of this pile of dirt, is a goldfish. About 30 yards from the pond. The thing's alive. It's on its side. It's flipping around. And I'm like, 
this is amazing. Like, I, like, this is a miracle. Like, how does this even happen? I mean, it's not Sam. He doesn't swim upstream, and this isn't a stream. It's through grass. You know, what's going on? So I don't know. I'm dumbfounded. I pick up the goldfish, and I walk over, and I throw them into the pond, and I'm still kind of scratching my head. And then I notice something. It catches my attention, and I look up, and I see a falcon circling. And from the pond to the falcon's nest, dead center in the middle was this pile of dirt. And I just so happened to walk by, couldn't have been moments after that bird had dropped that goldfish, frustratingly, I'm sure, right in the, I mean, if it would have been two inches to the left or two inches to the right in in the grass, I would have never even seen it, but it was right here. It was right here on this dirt. Um, And I was dumbfounded, I had no idea, and I I realized I could probably draw a thousand great spiritual examples from this picture. But really the reason I I want to bring this up is because I I had no concept and no idea of what was going on until I looked up and I saw that falcon. And then everything became clear. Um, I didn't see what had happened before, I didn't see what had happened after, but I I knew once I looked up that that I, I understood what the context of everything was. And... For Cleopas and for his buddy and for so many, uh, we, we can spend our time looking down at the, 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 the clods of dirt wondering why in the world does this happen the way it's happened and never actually look up. And it would be easy to cr- criticize Cleopas and his buddy here in this situation, but I think if we're honest with ourselves, for most people when life isn't fantastic anymore, when it hasn't turned out the way we expected it to turn out and our, our dreams and our hopes have failed and, and crumbled before us, it's pretty easy to slide into a, a funk. It's pretty easy to walk along and cry in our proverbial beer. Circumstances begin to rule us. The things that we're around begin to discourage us. And those people that are our enemies, like in this case, Pilate and Caiaphas and all of the others, um, or our circumstances, they stand taller in our hearts and our minds than the living God does. Because we get stuck on this horizontal viewpoint. We get stuck in just the affairs of life and the affairs of uh, this world. And that's just our natural response. I mean, that's normal and natural for most people um, that we we would do this. Our prayers can seem to bounce off the ceiling and God can seem to be far from us. But, but the truth is that he is not. He is close. He is much closer. And uh, even though with these guys, even though that Jesus had prevented them from seeing himself at that moment, God, and this is what's key with this story, God through Jesus could have not been any closer. I mean, he's literally right there talking to him. He could not have been any closer to them in their circumstances than he was at that very moment with these two men. And so Jesus peels off that first layer, that first layer kind of helping them to look up and not just to see the circumstances that they were facing. And then he says this, he brings a, a rebuke to them. He says this in Luke 24, verses 25 through 27, you foolish people. Now remember, they still don't know this is Jesus. He just says to them, you foolish people, how slow of heart to believe all that the prophets had spoken. Wasn't it necessary for the Christ to suffer these things and to enter into his glory? And then, beginning with Moses and all of the prophets, he interpreted to them the things written about himself in all of the scriptures. What's super interesting about this here in this rebuke, he calls them, oh foolish ones, but he does not call them stupid. 
You see, um, in Jewish categories, to be called a fool is not to give an intellectual assessment. It's rather to give a moral assessment. To be a fool is to be one who has all of the facts, who is in themselves intelligent, and yet they do nothing with that intelligence. They do nothing with those facts, and they act in contrary to what they know to be true or should know to be true. And this is not something that sits well with most people, but Scripture teaches that God has placed eternity in the hearts of humankind. Scripture teaches that God has revealed himself to all of mankind in nature and through his word. And so with that, we can deduce that all people at some level know God. They have an understanding of him. But so many people choose not to pursue that twinge of understanding and instead to suppress it because at their core, they hate the law of God. So Jesus does this. He peels back this this first layer from, from their eyes, the layer which has their earthbound eyesight fixed from looking upwards. And then he moves on to verse 21, which says this. Their hopes, their hopes were based on their own agenda. And then Cleopas says this, We were hoping that it was he who was going to redeem Israel. So with this, basically we, we've got the same thing, what we've already talked about, that they believed that the Messiah would simply recapture the glory days, the days of old when the kings, righteous kings ruled, King David Uh, And he would victoriously lead Israel to this powerful Jewish empire that would, you know, rule the whole whole world. That's what their agenda was. That was what their hope was, was placed on. But they didn't see God's true and much more beautiful picture of a kingdom that is going to come. Truth is, as long as someone clings to his or her own agenda, he or she is going to remain blinded to the reality of of God's loving care, his creative beauty. God is the one who is sovereign. God is the one who is righteous. God is the one that has set up life to be beautiful for for his people. He's the one who wrote the rules and knows the rules and asks his children to, to, to follow those things. So I want to pause for a few, few, few seconds here and just want to ask three questions. If you have notes, they're already in your notes. If you don't, you can, you can look here. First off, first question is, to what expectation might you be clinging to? To what expectation might you be clinging to with your life? Do you expect God to have worked in certain ways, to have made all of your your plans come out the way that you would plan them to? Second question is, what future have you determined for yourself? What future have you determined for yourself? And thirdly, thirdly, what perspective will you choose? I say if here, but really more properly, it's when your plans unravel or when someone comes and shatters those plans, shatters those dreams, like in our context, for Cleopas and his buddy, their dreams are shattered by the Romans, the religious zealots of those day, the religious rulers. But what perspective will you choose when your plans come undone? We, we tend to typically view circumstances, especially those that involve loss and difficulty, 
Um, because reality does not fulfill our agenda. Reality doesn't fulfill our, our expectations. We tend to get the impressions that God has abandoned us and our suffering, which only intensifies the pain and the loss that, that we're suffering and feeling. The, these two men um, on this road to Emmaus, they undoubtedly had felt that God had abandoned them. That's what they felt. But ironically, the very perspective that was causing their pain was also the very thing that was keeping them from seeing Jesus in their presence because they were so stuck on their own agenda, their own idea. Uh, I want to encourage you to release your expectations, to hand them over to the Lord, to hand them over to him, to open your hands to receive whatever it is that he's chosen to place in your hands. And just a hint here, that's Jesus. Here's a simple prayer that um, it's not original to me. It's by an author named Jerry Bridges. And it says this, Lord, I'm willing, I'm willing to receive what you give, to lack what you withhold, to relinquish what you take, to suffer what you inflict, and to be what you require. But I warn you here, uh, praying with Pastor Joe before the service this morning, and um, he, as he was praying, he said, um, Lord, as I'm praying this, I'm a little afraid to pray this because I know this is one of those prayers that you'll answer and I know it's going to kind of um, rock my world a little bit. This is one of those prayers like that, that when you pray it, God will answer it. And your expectation and your agenda may not be the same. It was this mentality in this prayer that was lacking in the two disciples here, and Cleopas and his buddy. Jesus helped them gain a divine and eternal perspective an upward-looking eye by teaching them the Bible, by teaching them the Scriptures. So he went back to Genesis and worked his way all the way through to Malachi. He's Jesus. I don't know how you could do that in an hour-and-a-half walk, but he did. Uh, he's, I guess that's part of being the Savior. Um, and I don't know what passages he would have covered, but I'm quite sure one of them would have been Isaiah 53, 5, and 6. I don't have this on the screen, but if you're taking notes, you want to write this next to your margin. Isaiah 55, or 53, 5, and 6, and it says this. It says, He was pierced through for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The chastening for our well-being fell upon him, and by his scourging we are healed. All of us, I love that, all of us, like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his or her own agenda, his or her own expectation, his or her own ways. But the Lord has caused the iniquity of us all to fall on him, Jesus. So now, here they are, they, they approach, they approach uh, Emmaus, and the two disciples, they find themselves so intrigued by this random dude that just seemed to know everything, that they don't really know who he is. They, they're so intrigued by him that they do what is customary in that culture. They, they offer the um, the the Airbnb, which is attached to their property. They offer him a place to stay for the night. And Jesus, of course, accepts that offer. And uh, all the while, he's still continuing to conceal from them his true identity. For whatever reason, the disciples just weren't, weren't quite ready until the final truth that was obscuring um, their, their viewpoint. The final layer still remained on their eyes. And what was that final layer? It's the third point here. They failed to acknowledge the resurrection. That's what they failed to acknowledge. 
They had heard all the reports. They had all of the facts. They knew all there was to know about the events of that day. They simply refused to believe with their entire hearts what had taken place. And their lack of belief in the resurrection, their lack of belief in that, it affected absolutely everything. See, if these two disciples, if they had believed that Jesus was alive, they would not have been walking from Jerusalem to Emmaus with their heads down. They would have been walking the opposite direction or staying in Jerusalem, just waiting for what might happen. And secondly, they would have accepted this, this trial. They would have accepted the crucifixion and the burial of Jesus as the fulfillment of, the fulfillment of what had been promised and not the end of their dreams, not the end of their expectations, not the end of their hopes. And so uh, uh, the afternoon sun, it began to, began to close over the, the horizon and Jesus and these two followers, they prepared an evening meal. And uh, no doubt they continued to talk and discuss the issues about why the Messiah had to die. And of course, the death of, of Jesus begs that obvious question. How then will the Messiah establish his kingdom and how will he reign over it if he's dead? And then we see verses 30 and 31. When he had taken his place at the table with them, he took the bread, blessed and broke it and gave it to them. At this point, their eyes, this is key, at this point, their eyes were opened and they recognized him. What a trip that must have been. At this point, their eyes were opened and they recognized him. And just when things get good, then he vanished out of their sight. Boop. Gone. You can read the rest of the story there um, in 32 and, and following. Luke doesn't tell us here how the breaking of bread opened their eyes. All we know for certain here is that now these layers that had been clouding their vision, that had kept their eyes earthbound, that had kept their own hopes and agendas, keeping them captive, their lack of recognition of the resurrection, now those layers were removed. And that is exactly how it happens for us today, too. Same thing happens for us today. We are just plodding our way through life. We're working our way through life. And stuff happens, whether it's in life in general, whether it's at school, whether it is at work, whether it's in your marriage, whether it's with your parenting, whether it's with crumbling finances, whether it's with a, a spiritual crisis, whatever the case might be, something happens to upset the routine of our world and reduces our expectations to rubble. And yet, maybe we, as we look at this, we have one or more of these faulty perspectives in our own way, in our own eyes, things that are keeping us from, from seeing the way things truly are in the resurrected life of Christ. So let me just kind of close by suggesting just three practical responses to this passage uh, the first response is to choose, to choose to view life through God's eyes. Choose to view life through the Lord's eyes. This is not easy for any of us. It's not easy. I kind of thought naively that when I got into ministry, this would be easier. Yeah, it's not easier. We're humans. Our eyes tend to want to just keep looking at the things that are obstacles in our way. 
Um, but that's not the case. Um, and we can't do it on our own anyway. We have to allow we have to allow God to elevate our vantage point. And that really does start by reading his word. That starts by assembling with his people. Uh, some people say, well, I don't know where to read in the word. Well, just, just start somewhere. Start in the beginning and work your way through it. Well, I don't understand everything. That's okay. No one does understand everything. Even Dr. Bob here, who understands most everything, he doesn't understand everything. If you're new here, Dr. Bob is one of our resident, or the resident theologian in our congregation. Um, but God seems to, in his own way, speak to us through the, the, the reading and the meditation of the Bible. That's what he does. Um, when we do this, it gives my horizontal per- perception vertical dimension, vertical perce- or perspective. So pray to God, ask God to transform your thinking. Let him, let him do what you cannot do. Let him do what you cannot do. Ask him to give you this divine perspective. Ask him to replace your way of thinking with with his way of thinking. Second thing here that we see is an application is surrender your expectations. Simply put, surrender your expectations. Stop trying to to change the universe to work the way that you think it should work. You see, grief is an interesting thing. Grief is, is essentially the process of adjusting your mind to accept a radical new reality, a radical new situation. And the sooner that we accept that, the sooner that we heal when we accept that reality. When we give up wishing that things were different, we begin to change from the inside out. So let go of resentment, let go of those hurts, those fears, whatever it is that's causing you to stay in your earthbound perspective. Release your grip on what you want most. No matter how good or right you think it is. And I'll talk to people all the time, even in my own life. I think my way is right. A man's way is right in his own eyes. But it's the Lord's will that prevails. Holding on to our expectations, I've got I to gotta believe from experience as well as from talking to many of you, is an exhausting thing. It's an exhausting thing to hold on to our own expectations. Surrender those to the Lord. And as you do this, ask him to show you his plan. Chances are he's not going to reveal it all at one time. that's probably a good thing. It's probably a good thing because um, transformation. I'll switch to this. Does that, does that work? All right. Transformation takes time. It doesn't happen in the time frame that we'd like it to happen, but it does happen in time. It's slow and sometimes tedious, but it's through the hard things of life that the good things are produced. And then thirdly, and finally, Acknowledge the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Stake your future upon it. Belief in the fact of his resurrection, it will truly radically transform how you approach your, your life, and how you approach life in general. The death of Jesus conquered sin, overcame death's finality, but it's his resurrection that gives us life. It's his resurrection that gives us hope. And reason to continue when everything else can appear to us to be hopeless. And then we come to this beautiful verse, verse 32. And it says this. They said to each other, did not our hearts burn within us while he was taught? This is after he's blipped out of the scene. He's disappeared. He's been transported out. Did not our hearts burn within us while he was talking to us on the road while he opened up the scriptures 
to us. I don't know where you are at today. I certainly, one of the joys of being a, a relatively newer, younger preacher is that uh, there's passages that I've never preached on before, and um, I know the story, but being able to actually study and prepare it to be pre- preached works on me. And man, do I identify with this message and identify with Cleopas and his, his buddy here and being stuck from time to time. So I don't know if that's you, if there's, there's um, one of these applications that take place, but I also know that there are some in here today that are just unconverted. You may know all of the facts of the story of the resurrection, but you've not yet, by faith, chosen to believe it. And it's my prayer that for every one of you, that before your head hits your pillow tonight, before that takes place, you will confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, and you will believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, because if you do that, Scripture teaches in Romans 10 that you will be saved. And that's, that's the beauty, that's the goal. Salvation that comes by faith in the person and the work of Jesus Christ. And we can have that joy because of the resurrection that has come and been found. And that's why we're here to celebrate this Easter. I'd like to invite